Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. After you finish listening, we would really appreciate it if you gave us a rating on iTunes and Google Play to help other listeners find our show. We are taking Political R&D to the next level. Our programming will now include more frequent podcasts, including interviews that challenge and inform. We're also bringing new writers to cover the politics in everything. Please consider becoming a patron. Your support will help us improve, increase, and pay for the content you enjoy. You can find us on Patreon at PoliticalRND or link through our website at politicalrnd.ca. Now, let's get political. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm Mark Taylor. And today our guest is Max Fawcett. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. And so we are going to do a little bit of debate or analysis on whether or not Alberta could elect after a a pandemic such as this, which will affect our economy. So after an economic decline, whether or not a party that is actually further to the right of the UCP could possibly be eligible to form government. Fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, can I be the optimist here and, and suggest that, at least federally, I, I just cannot foresee a situation where a, a group or a party is right as the PPC gets elected. I, I think Canadians are they're just more pragmatic and less ideological than Americans are. You know, we don't have a, a two-party system where people are sort of forced to choose uh, perhaps a less bad option. Um, and, and time and again, they've been given, you know, in the last election, they were given the choice of a pretty populist option and they turned away. Um, you know, it, I, I see the, 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 you know, the federal conservatives in their leadership race really trying to mine that ground of, of going even further to the right and even more populist. But I, I think that's going to blow up in their faces. Uh, I just don't think it resonates with most of us. I like that you're going to take the optimistic approach. Mark, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, I, I mean, th- this all stems from, uh, it was uh, Ken Bozenkuhl, and I can't remember who the other writer was. Dan um, Robertson. Thank you. Um, had an article out and said that if Trudeau doesn't handle this well, uh, puts too much into businesses and not enough into families, that would cause a populist uprising. I'm, I'm kind of with Max on this is that I think the Alberta example and the federal will be two different uh, movements. I've, I've talked before, there's a left-wing populist. We haven't really seen a lot of left-wing populism in Canada outside of maybe the Occupy Wall Street, but all we would need is Trudeau flushing families, and you could see somebody coming up out of the NDP very much in like an AOC-type character mm-hmm. um, and rallying people to families that way, much like we are seeing with right-wing populism trying to elect federal conservatives and the UCP here in Alberta. That's right. Did we talk about this on a podcast or was this just a conversation we were having? Oh, when I was railing against populists months uh, ago. Months ago, last week, yesterday. Yeah. Um, and that was that was an interesting idea too, because during that discussion, we had decided that uh, Jagmeet Singh is not the, he's not the AOC. 
He's no. definitely not. No. So no. like what, what has to happen federally to have that left-wing populism? I mean, of course, the last time was Jack Layton. I, I think you would need, you definitely need a federal liberal party that is, is hedging to the right, which is not what you have with Justin Trudeau. He is very smartly occupied the left side of, of the spectrum. Uh, I think it's impossible as long as he's in government. And oh. I, I, you know, I just don't see how left populism could work here if it hasn't even worked in the United States. I mean, look, for, for all the success that AOC has had, if you look at the 2018 congressional midterms and the sort of furthest left candidates, they lost. It was the moderates that, that were the ones that were doing the best. And you look at the, you know, the, the recent presidential uh, nomination race, uh, you know, Bernie, Bernie crapped out. He was yeah. less, less impressive than he was in 2016. And, and, you know, now he's endorsing the, you know, the, the, the party and, and Joe Biden. So I, I know I have friends in Alberta who are on the left who desperately want a left populist option to emerge. And I just keep <laughs> saying to them, look, like, if it, if it can't work in BC, uh, or Quebec, or the United States, it's not going to happen federally. And it's certainly not going to happen in Alberta. There's just, you know, the odds of that happening are uh, so incredibly small that it's not worth entertaining. <laughs> I, I'll go as far as I say thought you were the optimist. <laughs> Look, from a centrist perspective, <laughs> that is optimism. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, what were you saying? Well, I'll, I'll, if he's being the optimist with it, it's almost impossible. I'll just say it straight out. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. There's, there, there, there isn't enough left-wing populace in Alberta, <laughs> let alone distributed equally to, to form a government. Okay. We know that there's going to be economic pain. Um, it's global. This is, this is definitely a, a global issue. I looked at a few other countries. I picked, um, well, I picked Greece and Italy because I remembered for sure that Greece had gone through that financial meltdown. And so I looked at them to see what, what had happened with, with their government and with their parties. And uh, yeah, they did, they did go far right, or at least uh, allowed for a far right party to exist. Um, they actually in 2019, so they just had an election, and they went with the less far-right party than the neo-Nazis. So <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a positive. It, the articles that I was reading made it sound like, yeah, it's positive, but it's not really a, a, a victory uh, for Greece. But they're definitely ones that, yeah, they went absolutely far-right after their financial crisis. 2012 uh, was when the neo-Nazi party really started to get going. So um, Italy, of course, their, uh, their financial crisis started in 2018. And there was a far-right government in place. Italy's uh, government is... Italy's parliamentary system is different. Uh, they do far more coalition governments than actually end up with majorities. But uh, in 2019, it ended up that the center left and an anti-establishment party are the ones who have tentatively, if it lasts, the other, the other, the previous coalition only lasted 14 months. 
but they were far right. So that was during a financial crisis. And then America, when I was looking at theirs, their last financial crisis was 2007, started in 2007. They had an election in 2008. They kept Obama. So well, they didn't, they didn't well, keep no. Obama, they elected Obama. No, wait. Oh, was that his first? Yeah, that was his first. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Why did I think? Okay. So they actually went left after, during a financial crisis. Well, yeah. and I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that, you know, the, the Obama Democrats were that far left. They're not really, but they were uh, further than who was, who was up? Who was the actual candidate? Was that? It was, well, he was running against McCain. So he was clearly, he was clearly left of McCain, but I mean, um, even George W. wasn't, you know, George W. wasn't like a hardcore right wing populist at that point. And I mean, the thing to remember about, about Italy and Greece, uh, the Greeks just got rid of their proportional system. The Italians still have theirs, but they mm -hmm. elect their, their legislatures um, using this you know, proportional representation, which tends to exacerbate uh, extreme voices and give them more of a platform. So uh, you combine that with the fact that Italians and Greeks have a, let's, let's just call it historical flirtation with fascism. Um, and it really kind of sets up the, uh, the, the conditions for, for, you know, populism to take hold. I don't, we don't have that in Canada. We certainly don't have that in Alberta. Um, you know, I think you saw in 2011 uh, with, you know, with the Wild Rose looking like they were going to form a government. Mm. You had a lot of people who all of a sudden were like, well, no, we can't have that. Uh, and they swung over to back to the PCs. I, I just find it hard to imagine that we could have, um, a truly populist, truly, I mean, again, it's hard to think of a government more right-wing than the one we have right now, but um, maybe like a theocratic, well, they're, they're kind of there too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's part of it is that like the UCP has not left much space for a more populist, more right-wing government to outflank them. There's not that's much true. to flank. Yeah, that's and that's what, I, that's what I was trying to dig into when we were looking at this question. And it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big, um, I won't say advocate. I'm, I'm, I rail heavily that Trump is a right-wing populist. He just does populist things. Um, he's not Republican in any way, shape or form. Um, I would say the same thing with Jason Kenney, the, that he's not really conservative. He's a right-wing populist. I would say the difference between the two is that Kenney actually can legislate. Trump, Trump is lacking that skill. So we've got the better of the two populists, but you know, like Trump went and handpicked his team, put them in place, fired a bunch of them um, because whoever, you know, whoever doesn't agree with Trump is shown the door. Well, that's not much different in Kenny's world. It's just how they get in. Like they, you know, we, we were hearing leading up to the election about a lot of problems in nomination contests around mm -hmm. the province. Um, you know, like I know the big ones that are off the top of my head were Peace River with Dan Williams. There was a lot of people internally with the UCP who were complaining about the nomination process being a little tainted, fixed, whatever word you want to use. Um, <laughs> same with uh, Cards and Sitka, uh with uh, Joseph Shao, I think it is. Mm -hmm. he, you know, like you've got the former MLA down there um, standing up going, this is a load of crap, mm -hmm. and then ran as an independent. Um, like, that that's that strikes me as like they the fix was in long beforehand because you know it that's you handpick your team you put them in place and, and away you go so 
I, I'm, I'm looking at these guys and I just don't know how you get worse. Well, it's been a year, so it's a, it's on topic. Um, so one of the reasons to why we had asked Max to come on is because in January you had written about, you know, what does, what does the future hold for a progressive movement in Alberta? And let's, yeah. let's flesh that out a little bit. <laughs> you just nodded. <noticed. laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I got very interesting feedback from both of my, let's call it center, center right friends and my NDP further to the left friends. And it kind of reaffirmed the fear that I have, which is that um, they're not going to come together. That, uh, you know, this, this is, you know, for all of Kenny's mistakes, um, his great victory was he kind of clubbed everyone over the head on the right and got them into the same tent and mm -hmm. managed to do it without having too many uh, sort of breakaway uh, uh, people come, you know, trying, potentially forming their own party. And that's why he won the election. Uh, it's just a, a numbers game. If they can get all of their people under one hat, they're going to win elections. And the only way for progressives in this province to fight that is to get all of our people under one hat. And unfortunately, I think progressives are a little more, let's call it um, self-directed than conservatives in that, in that conservatives are more likely to follow a leader and progressives are more likely to try to be the leader. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, if you have two, you know, the NDP and another strong centrist party, mathematically they cannot win um, as long as the right is united. You know, and I, and I worry that some of my friends on the left have drawn the wrong lesson from 2015. It, it, the lesson was not we can win. The lesson was we can only win if the right is split. I can't even argue that because that, that is, that, I mean, that's the numbers game, you know. It, and, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I really liked Mac's article because he pointed out that it's like there will never be another NDP government, mm -hmm. not as the NDP. So, you know, you know, everyone's, everyone, I, well, not everyone, I see a number of people on Twitter going, uh, the Alberta party should shut down, the Liberal party should shut down, and everybody should join the NDP. Well, the problem is, is that, you know, the people running those parties aren't NDP. So they'll never go over there. So they're never going to shut down. So you need, a, you need an entity, you know, whether it's a new party or what, which, you know, there's different routes, some take a lot of work, and some are really easy um, to form a new party it would be fantastic because that's the only way you're going to be able to sever the right, because there are people who identify as old PCs who mm -hmm. are uncomfortable with the UCP, but they're less uncomfortable with the UCP than they are with the NDP. Right. And so the only, the only way they would consider a progressive option is one, it's probably not called progressive. Uh, <laughs> and two, it's, it, you know, like that, that, that was the, brilliance of the Saskatchewan party and what they were trying to attempt with the Alberta party was let's get rid of the political labels and let's just give it a generic label. Like even the wild rose um, didn't purport to be a hard right wing party. They just simply said, we're the wild rose party. It was, it was an identity of Albertans mm. and the first wave of wild rosers were the, the fiscal conservatives who were upset with what the PCs were doing. Right. Not, the social conservatives came after. And then they influenced, but the, the first wave of wild rosers were just people who were really annoyed with how the PCs were spending money. So you, you almost need the opposite side. Now you now see, need the old PCs, the old progressives within the conservative camp to say, you know what, I'm tired with what you're doing with health. Um, 
education people and and we're out but you got to give them a landing spot or they have to be driven enough to create their own yeah right. it's interesting it's interesting a lot of conservatives that i know talk to who you know voted ucp they like rachel notley they like certain members of her team mm-hmm. for some reason they cannot get past the brand right that, they, that orange the orange it's you know and it's the you know the linkages with the federal party you know i've suggested that they should be uh, formally severing those ties. And, you know, I have friends of mine who said, oh, that didn't work for the Alberta Liberal Party. And, and in fairness, nothing works for the Alberta Liberal Party because, <laughs> you know, like that's not a good, that's not a good enough reason not to do it just because it didn't work for the ALP. The ALP is a, is a museum of failure. Um, and, you know, as someone who identifies as a federal liberal, it, it, it's almost offensive to me that, that it would continue to persist in the face of so much failure. That's not what we do as liberals. We don't lose, right? Oh. We try to win. Um, and so I would like that mindset to, you know, uh, infect the NDP as well. But my concern there is that, and I, you know, I've, I've seen this over the course of many, many years. My parents were deeply involved in NDP politics in BC. There's a lot of people on the left that would rather lose with dignity than win with a bit of dirt under their fingernails. Um, and, and so any attempt to kind of coalesce around, a, you know, let's call it a new brand is going to face opposition from people who will stick with the NDP brand because they would rather lose with their principles than win without them. And I don't know how you get around that. Well, and, and I would, I was going far to say is you would find that with every party. There's, there's stalwarts within the Alberta liberals who won't, won't give up the brand. Um, you know, they're dead. They, they're, they're literally a zombie party at this point. Everybody knows they're dead. They're just walking around. And, and still getting donations. Yeah. But I mean, I, I also know my Alberta party people exceptionally well. There are stalwarts there who will never give up the brand. And, right. and so if you sit there and even, if, you know, as a party, says, we believe in pragmatism and, and evidence-based. It's like, well, here's the evidence. Here are the numbers. Here's what happens. You all need to join this new party. They'll be like, no. No, it's not pure enough. And, so, and these purity tests are, and, and I mean, not the conservatives don't have purity tests as well. Uh, we just, we have less people taking them on the center and, and progressive sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't, I don't like it, uh, but I, I respect it. And, and it here is the conservatives put winning at the top of their priority list. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you look down to the States and, and, and the way that some people have swallowed their, let's call it pride or dignity to continue supporting uh, Donald Trump. It's gross, but, but it's why they win elections. It's because mm-hmm. they are willing to, you know, subordinate their own personal preferences or whatever discomfort they might have because they fear the enemy even more. And Kenny, Kenny used that very well, you know, in, in binding the conservatives in Alberta together by saying, look, you know, maybe, maybe you, you know, wild rosers don't agree with you old former PCers, but we all agree that we hate the NDP and that, and that was good enough. Um, it was, and I'm just, I don't think it's good enough for progressives for, for whatever reason. So I'm kind of wondering too, because, uh, and now Mark, I have figured out that we have talked about this offline. So this is all coming back to me, but we didn't actually talk about it publicly. Um, so like you were saying about that, uh, the people who are uncomfortable in the UCP party because it is too far right, that you really need those to, those individuals to decide I'm not staying anymore because, and you know, like you've both said, 
there's nowhere to go on the right. I mean, there are further right parties, but I think that I think that is an important piece that you were saying there, Max, that um, that they will stick to what will win. So they're not going to go off and join the Freedom Conservative Party, even if they agree with everything the party stands for, because they're very unlikely to win. So the mass will not move there. But if the center right of the United Conservative Party, which there has to be a large faction of, so if that large faction were to manage to shave off or separate, I think you're, you're right with they would have to actually form a brand new party because the stalwarts in each of the other parties aren't going to welcome them. Yeah, maybe the Alberta party was just too far ahead of its time. I think it was the right idea. Uh, I was, you know, I went to a few early meetings back in God, 2011 or something, and, and it appealed to my sort of policy wonk uh, side. But, you know, I think one of one of the problems it ran into is it had a lot of strategists and not enough door knockers. Um, oh. And, you know, the NDP, the NDP's great strength is that they have a lot of people who don't want to be strategists. They just want to knock doors. Mm-hmm. And you need, you need both. Uh, and you need door knockers, you know, at a 10 to one ratio of strategists. And I think the, you know, the Alberta party had it backwards. They had a 10 to one strategist to door knockers. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what I observed within the party was, it, it wasn't even strategy versus door knocking. It's, it's very much, and I saw it when I was with the Greens as well, was you've got a lot of people who want to be the person directing things. Like you identified, it's a ton of leaders, but nobody wants to actually go and do the work. Nobody wants to pick up the phone and, and call their network and say, hey, this is, a, this is a crew I'm getting behind. I could really use your help. I need 100 bucks from you. I need you to put a sign on your lawn because you know me and you know this is important. Like they're not making those phone calls to their own network, let alone into the people who have self-identified. And this, this is the difference between the UCP and even the NDP and, and the centrist party. So I don't think the liberals are really doing it either is that they're not reaching into their networks and going, get me in front of your rotary, get me in front of your church, get me in front of these organizations so I can go and sign up 500 people to give me 10 bucks each. They like, you just have to look at the numbers that are coming out. If you don't fundraise, you don't have power. That's, that's really where it comes down to. This is how our political game is played right now. And, and then you get into the whole purity thing. It's like, well, I'd rather have purity and message and lose than to have that tainted. And, you know, as you identified, like no one, no one from the UCP is going to cross over to the NDP. So where do they cross to? Is it the Alberta party? Well, if the Alberta party can stop with the purity tests, because you know, the first thing they're going to do, you know, some, you know, I'm going to pull just the hypothetical just because it's in the news today. You've got doctors in Lac La Biche who've said they're done. They're not, Mm -hmm. they're not working in the ER anymore. And, and so, you know, does that become enough of a push that Layla Goodridge says I'm out? Well, she does. Where does she go? She's not crossing to the NDP. Can she right. come to the, would she go to the Alberta party? Would the Alberta party take her? Or are they going to go, well, Hey, you, you ran UCP. We can't take UCP. <laughs> and, and so, you know, where does she land at this point? And there's gotta be some people in the NDP camp who are like, you know, screaming six times a day, isn't getting anything done. So, you know, uh, maybe I'll go sit with Layla. I mean, my, my sense and, and this, pisses off a lot of people that I used to work with um, 
is the only way to win government is to recreate the old PC alliance. Not, not the PC party itself, not its values, not any of that, but the, the voter coalition that they represented, especially under Alison Redford. Um, and the way you do that is you have to break the NDP. You have to split them up and basically drive them to the left and make them once again, a party of, you know, university, university activists, anti, anti oil and gas people, like really push them left and bring, you know, the union, the, the working class, the, the, the middle, middle part of its coalition over to some new entity. Um, and I think ultimately the only, ironically, the only person who can do that is Rachel Notley. People would follow her. Um, yeah. If she said, look, the this, this brand isn't working for us. The federal party is, is a drag. Um, I'm creating a new option that, that will allow all of us to come together because we care about this province more than we care about our parties. But that would also require her to give up on a party that she was basically raised in, you know, that her father was a, a defining influence on. And I, I don't know that that's a realistic expectation of her. And further, she couldn't lead it. Exactly. Yeah. She, mm -hmm. she could help form it, but she couldn't yes. lead it because otherwise it would just be NDP 2.0. That'd be the immediate branding done. Yeah. So. yeah. But that would be, that would be the great act of leadership would be for her to say, you know, I am throwing my, my weight behind this new, this new coalition and I'm not going to put my name forward for it, but I encourage everyone else to, to give it a shot. Like that would be genuine leadership. Um, in but, the service. She, but she'd have to be standing up there with a Layla Goodridge at the same time and not just just yeah. Layla, but you would need to have Rachel and like Sarah Hoffman and Joe CC standing up there with three or four UC peers who have all who have all quietly behind the scenes said, this isn't working for Alberta. We're abandoning our brand, potentially abandoning our careers um, yeah. to do what's right. Yep. I think that would resonate if you had that sort of coalition. Um, you know, they could they could say that it was a you know it's a one off. This is just one election that we're coming together here to to get things back on track, and and then maybe we'll go back to our old houses after. But um, yeah, I think Albertans are pragmatic. I think they would. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember when the NDP surge happened. That wasn't an ideological surge. That was a pragmatic surge. That was. I remember talking to people in Calgary who were basically saying, I don't vote NDP, but I'm going to do it this time because God damn it, we need to get, we need, to, we need to change. We need to get rid of these guys. And I think some people in the NDP interpreted it as a shift of allegiances. And it wasn't, it, it was just, it was this moment of collective pragmatism where it was like, we finally got a chance to change this bed linen. Let's do it. You know? Yeah, but, I would agree that that and everyone thought their neighbors were going to vote PC. But and I mean, I got the same thing when I banged on the doors in 2015 and in 2019 is that people were admitting that, you know, it was a one and done. They had no intention. It was a protest vote. They never were NDP. They just, and I mean, these were oil patch people. I was door knocking in Calgary mm -hmm. um, that were voting against the PCs because they were sick of it. But I mean, the other the other part of this, you know, proposed party is you can't just have you know, 20 NDPers and two UCPers, you actually need a minimum of 23 um, UCPers to cross to it. Mm. Which, good luck identifying those 23 people <laughs> of the current 67. But do you though, or do you just need a, a certain critical, you know, let's say 10 to 15 to create a viable, you know, a viable caucus, a viable um, political entity. I mean, 
I know from the media side that if that if, if you had a party with 10 MLAs, they would get so much media attention. It would be wild uh, because I think the media always likes the underdog. Uh, well, they like, and they like a narrative, right? The narrative of, you know, the, the phoenix rising from the ashes. Like they, mm-hmm. they, they, are, they are susceptible to stories. And the story there would be, I think, pretty irresistible. If, if mean, that party was going to have any long-term future, not the Rachel leaving the NDP for a one-term, we got to do what's right for Alberta, but I'm, I'm building a brand new, the real PC 2.0, not what the Alberta party was being labeled with, but an actual entity, then yeah, you could probably do it with 10 uh, from the UCP caucus and say 10, like you don't want to overload it with the NDPers or else it, it, yeah. it's got to be a balance that literally one comes over when one from the other side comes over. Um, but if you really want it to be an impact, it's the 24 NDPers and 23 UCPers who take over government and Jason suddenly sitting on the other side of the, the, uh, uh, the floor as leader of the opposition. Well, that that would be wild. That would be absolutely wild. Um, like I said, you got to find twenty three UCPers that would do it, and I don't think there's that many. No. Pragmatic, centrist. I could probably get ten, but I don't think I could get to twenty three. No. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and yet, and part of my ten, you're probably peeling a couple out of cabinet, which they're not doing that either. So, one of the things that I've said to to fellow centrists when we talk about this is that on both sides, you have to imagine it like it's a, it's a, it's a stream or a river that's, that's, you know, got a bunch of current in it. It's really dangerous. If you want to cross, you need something to step on, right? You can't just walk into the water and that's, that's true for both sides. So if you want new Democrats to switch sides, they're not going to go to the UCP. And if you want UCPers to switch sides, they're not going to go to the NDP. But if you create a little Island in the middle, where they feel safe stepping, they might be more willing to give it a shot. And the easiest thing is, is that all it takes is four MLAs to form a new party. Yeah. Like you, you, me, Deirdre, we got to go find 8,000 signatures. <laughs> but after, or, after we stop social distancing. Yeah. Please sign this form. <laughs> I left on your doorstep. I'm, I'm talking from the sidewalk. Like, that's, Just need a bullhorn. Yeah. But that's, it's really easy for them to form a brand new party. Yeah. For it, all it takes is four MLAs, and and then they also get the the parliamentary budget because that was uh, that was the threshold that the previous government put in. I believe was four. Mm-hmm. And now, so I think it's beneficial that that we don't think that we could get a further right wing party. That's that's awesome. But is the only way to get? Um, I guess to to end up with some some government that is at least amenable to I don't know center left slash left uh, opinions voices and center right not too far right uh, you know is that the is the only way that that will happen is to form a new party I mean I think that we've I think we've pretty much established that no one's going you know the liberals aren't going to give up the liberal party the stalwarts are not going to give up the NDP party. So it really will take a brand new party. I mean, at this, you know, at this point, and again, it pains me to say this and it should pain anyone associated with them. The liberal parties are relevant. Uh, Their, their leader who I think very highly of, I think he's a very smart guy who has a lot to give to public life, but he finished, if I'm correct, fourth in his own riding. Um, 
you know, th th that's a, that's a sign to shut it down. Um, but, but they, yeah. there's not enough votes going there anymore. And I don't even think there's enough money that it really matters. We can just ignore them. Um, and, and they will do what they do. But, uh, you know, it, it, I think it requires, you know, we always look to politicians when it's time to create a new party, right? Like, well, we, you know, and I'm guilty of this. Notley can help us do it. <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's some of the people who are, are underneath the, the radar, but are big players in the sort of political economy of our lives. People like Gil McGowan at the AFL or, or people like that who they have a lot of influence and people listen to them and their job is to advocate for their members and their, their you know, constituents. Mm -hmm. And if they, if they decide that, you know, maintaining this sort of NDP versus UCP uh, environment is not in the service of their members, maybe they're willing to, to stake out a claim. Uh, maybe they're willing to put their, their names behind a new entity. Um, and maybe that's how it, the rest of us who want to see this happen should be pursuing it. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. Hmm. I, I mean, what I'm finding though is a lot of those conversations, and I know they're happening behind the scenes, is there's a lot of people who aren't willing to put their own political capital on the line yeah. because the, the consequences of losing are profound. Yeah. Because this, this is a government that does go after its enemies. I was going to say they take names. And, yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of people, there's probably more people that are amicable to such a thing. And I would say you could start with, you know, UMA uh, and the Urban Municipality Association. Oh. Um, you could start with them because, you know, there's a lot of towns and city councillors who were upset with what's going on and, you know, Gabby more and more costs put onto them doesn't make their life any easier, but they're not going to say anything because the, the province is the big brother with a baseball bat. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, you're going to take this one way or the other. Uh, and so you can take it willingly or we're going to beat you. And, and so they're not saying anything and, you know, go to nonprofits, same thing. They're not saying anything because big brothers floating around. And, and even you get into some individuals who might have some personal uh, stake in all this, they're not doing it as well because big brothers coming on the baseball bat. Yeah. I, guess, I mean, I guess the question almost becomes how can you organize without that organization being visible? Uh, mm -hmm. And I suspect the answer is you can't. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Because how do you, how do you get the numbers that you actually need unless you're out there advocating and getting the word out. But, but you're right. I mean, we heard that uh, during 2015 and 2019, uh, Alberta party wise, that people in rural areas were, they were afraid for their business if they were seen to be supporting someone other than the wild rose. Eh, the wild rose, it wasn't as bad because there were still the PC wild rose kind of contingents, but when the UCP formed, like it was, it was so hard to get people to admit that they were not a UCP supporter, and it just wasn't. Yeah, it it was it was really difficult. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hear people, uh, you know, in my circles, you know, talk a lot about how Jason Kenny's a bully and how you know, yada yada yada. But look, it works. Um, oh, it does. You know, he's he's very good at keeping his ducks in a row. Um, and even if he has to threaten the ducks, um, you know, and I, it, it's a really tough sort of thing to fight because 
you know, he has all the clout. He has all the stick. He has all the carrot. Um, but I do think- And you know, he not, threatens ducks. He loves threatening ducks. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's one of his favorite things to do. But, you know, I think, I think the people who we could, we could ask for a little more uh, courage from right now is the business community. Uh, the business community is not powerless. The business community has, has cards to play here and, and are listened to. And I think yeah, they played they, them in 2019. They did, but I think they're starting to look at this and go, "Oh boy, this is not a this is not a trade that is working out in our favor right now." You know, all the the things that were promised, none of them have come to pass, other than the corporate tax cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not maybe, making any money, then eight percent of you know eight percent of zero is not less than twelve percent of zero. Yep, no, that's exactly it. And I, you're, you, I've already started to hear it, obviously, from people in the tech community, but I have started to hear it from a few people in the oil and gas industry who are going, this is not working. This is not the right approach. We are, we are putting ourselves in grave danger here. They're not going to say that publicly. Um, yeah. But, but I feel like the, you know, their courage levels are probably building in, in proportion to how bad things get. And, you know, the the worse things look, maybe the more, more stomach they'll have to talk. And so, I mean, so actually, you know, maybe that question was not worded properly because we can't go further right than what we currently have. So the question is, could a financial, sorry, an economic meltdown, like what is very possibly going to happen everywhere, but, but especially here, do you think there will be uh, that, like you said, that that's, that's what brings the courage up is if things are getting worse. And I mean, we've already seen it a couple of times in the legislature where the one with the two last names, Homeniak, Armstrong Homeniak. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's the MLA from Fort Saskatchewan, Bakerville. Okay, so when she was actually saying uh, these these cuts are, because it was nurse, it was nursing staff, I believe. And uh, so, they were they were trying to make some cuts. It was it was really affecting her area, constituents in her area, and she brought it up, but was kind of shut down by uh, other members of her party. And so it's it's situations like that, I think, where yes, yes, to toe the party line is is the goal of the party leader, I suppose, to ensure that that happens. But if towing the party line means that you actually have to actively ignore what is going on in your area, you have, you, you have to ignore people asking you for help, that's kind of the thing that could push, that could push those, those people out, right? Like as, as MLAs looking for something else saying, yeah, I'm not going to go NDP. I'm in Fort, well, Fort Saskatchewan did have an NDP, but still, I'm not going to go there. So, but that's the type of thing that could push them out, really. So, I, <laughs> I, I had a thought, and it, and because of, because of everything that's happening, it slipped out of my brain. But it was a good thought, I promise you. <laughs> um, oh boy, yeah, that's but disappointing. It, well, I'll let you keep going for that thought. But I mean, okay. you know, to build on your point previously, you know, we need to see, you know, I'm gonna just name like Arlene Dickinson. 
who has become very vocal on Twitter about what's going on with the government, but she needs to drive it from the business side of things. She's, she's going to end up bringing a ton of the jobs back to say Calgary. We need somebody from the tech side of things to start bringing the jobs back to Calgary and then publicly saying we did this despite Jason Kenney, not because of Jason Kenney. Right. That's the only way you're going to end. And then meanwhile, you're going to have to have some people find some political courage on in the legislature and go, you know what, this doesn't work for me. And I'm going to go sit in that corner by myself. And I'm going to risk not being elected again, because principle actually means something to me. So my, my idea came back to me. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kenny, Kenny has been very successful in, in blaming other people for his problems, right? That has been, I think, in some respects, the formula to his, to his political life is, who can I blame? How can I create an enemy? And then how can I direct people's anger towards that enemy? So, you know, first it was the NDP, then it was, the, you know, the federal liberals. Now, apparently it's, it's doctors and health experts, you know, and, and he's very good at, at papering up these enemies. And I wonder though, will Albertans, you know, in a year or two, who constantly hear him and his, his MLAs blaming other people start to go, well, wait a minute, you guys have been in power for three years now it's still other people's fault. Like it, I feel like at some point that that argument is going to lose power. And maybe that's the moment where people start looking around for other options. They go, you know what, we've given you three years. All you can do is blame other people. Maybe it's time for, for someone else to, to come in with a solution. And maybe that's when certain MLAs, you know, find their courage. Um, Your optimism is showing. I know. And, and let me, let me give some <laughs> optimism to the NDP because I've been shitting on them the entire podcast and, and I don't mean to do that. I love them dearly, but uh, uh, you know, we, we often think of politics on this sort of left right spectrum. Right. And so we're, we've been asking like, well, could there be another party that comes along that's further right? And I'm not sure, you know, if, if they're being devious and I've, I've always told them they should be more devious. Um, they should be trying to split the UCP, not along left right lines, but along urban rural lines. And, and you know, Mark, I think mm. made this point earlier that where they're most vulnerable is in rural communities where, you know, the doctor shortage and the, and the, the war on doctors is really going to hit hard, where a lot of the funding decisions is going to hit hard, where parents are now having to pay to bus their kids to school and that's costing them like 800 bucks a year. There's a lot of issues that line up around almost like a rural Alberta alliance. And if you force the UCP to have to compete with the NDP just in the cities and the suburbs, they're beatable. They're very beatable. Right. Right. Uh, it's when you give them the however many 30 seats automatically that are in rural parts of the province that they become unbeatable. So, you know, if, if, if there was some sort of rural Alberta Alliance, um, maybe that, maybe that splits things in a way that opens the door for the NDP. And it also spells raw, like raw. And it's the name of a band. <laughs> no, no, that's well, Rural Alberta Advantage. Advantage, sure, sure. <laughs> Call it that. Call it that. I've well, actually debated on that too. I'm like, that is such a cool name, but yeah. But the, it goes back to what we're discussing before, because you took a look at pre-2015. The You had the, the Wild Rose was strong in South Rural, mm -hmm. you know, Bible Belt-esque type things, up to about Red Deer fight in Calgary for seats, but the PCs owned everything north. 
And so, you know, it's the three-legged stool of Alberta politics. As long as you take two of the three legs, you win. Well, you know, they were always taking Edmonton. They were taking chunks of rural and they were taking chunks out of uh, Calgary. So the PCs win. Yeah. You need to do that again. And Rachel's already got one leg hammered down in Edmonton. So until they figure out a strategy to take a majority of rural, this, we are where we're at. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the mistakes that the NEP made in government, and, and here I go again shitting, but every, every government makes mistakes. Let me, let me caveat that. But I think they really wanted to win over the oil and gas employees and executives in those towers. And I think that was a tactical mistake. I don't think they were ever going to win over enough of them um, it to, to, to have it be meaningful. They had a much more compelling argument for the guys and gals working out in the field um, mm -hmm. because they're a pro-labor party. Um, you know, they're, they're focused on workers' rights. They're focused on ensuring that more of every barrel goes to the workers rather than the people working in the towers. And there's always been a natural friction between those two communities, right? You know, you talk to guys who work out in the field, they don't have a lot of love for people who make decisions in the head offices because oftentimes those decisions are, are you know, directly not helpful. Their, not helpful for them and their families. Yeah. And I just, you know, it, it, it was, I think, I think they wanted to win Calgary. And in some respects, I think winning rural Alberta was more doable. Uh, you know, when Mark talks about the three-legged stool. Um, yeah, NDP you know, votes went up in, in most, like in many of the rural ridings from what they had seen. Um, you know, I actually, I door knocked with uh, Phil DeBrant last, last election. Yeah. And one of the wealthiest areas of Strathmore, <laughs> there were so many NDP supporters. He was like, what is this? I, I don't even, I don't even understand. But these were people who, you know, answered the door and said, what is your position on LGBT students? Like we had more than one person open the door and, and just hit him with that. Right. Where do you stand with this? Because right now, like I'm not, I'm not voting, I'm not voting UCP. So and I think they could have been more shameless in playing up uh, Rachel's, you know, obvious farm cred because, you know, Kenny, right. you put a cow, you put a cowboy hat on Kenny and he just looks, he looks as uncomfortable as I do when I wear one. Right. You know, uh, it, it looks like someone who's not from Alberta wearing a cowboy hat, which is exactly what it is. Whereas with Rachel, like she knows how to ride horses. She grew up on a farm. Uh, she's a kindred spirit to, I think, a lot of people in rural Alberta. And, and I was surprised that they didn't play that up more than they did. Yeah, maybe they felt like it was like rural Alberta was just locked down. It had been Wild Rose. It's going to go UCP. And they just, I mean, they might have discounted it without really realizing. But I'm kind of remembering some of the, uh, uh, the short Rachel Notley videos that they did. And she was out riding horses or telling stories about her dad. Like some, oh, those were so good. Yeah, that they, they did right. it. They did it, but it was too late. Like yeah. <laughs> internally, internally with the Alberta party, we talked about, you know, like where did we fall down? And really where we fell down was Jason Kenney came to town in 2016 and started talking economy and that was it. Like it, nobody could change the channel. The, the NDP were the only ones who had a chance of doing that. Uh, but they didn't do it and nobody else was going to change the channel. And Kenny came in with a very simple populist jobs economy pipeline. Okay. Well, you know, where was the comments of, we're going to take it to the doctors and the radiologists and the teachers and pick a fight with everybody. That's it didn't matter words. at that point. Yeah. It was just jobs economy <laughs> pipeline. And so, you know, 
you know, it's going to be literally the same thing he says in 2023. I don't have the same optimism that people are going to go, wait, you've been bitching for three years. Um, maybe we need to consider somebody else. They're going to stand up and go, hey, Russia and Saudi drove us down. And then we had a, a pandemic. And then you got to give us another four years to get things right. Yeah. Like, unless, unless there's somebody, like I said, that stands up that, you know, you have community leaders stand up from the from the towns from MLAs crossing the floor from the business community they're standing up going we did this without you yeah that and well, and create that separate entity it's it's i i still predict a UCP election in 2023 i, I mean i think mark mark makes two good points there one of them is that and i and i saw this when i was in the in the climate change office uh, when they you know the UCP started doing their messaging around the, the carbon levy and you know they did the ridiculous stunts and people laughed at the stunts and they didn't realize that what they were doing is they were setting the frame for the election. And I don't think the NDP either, they didn't see it or they just didn't feel the threat until it was too late. And they finally started responding to it. But by that point, the, you know, the notion of a you know, job killing carbon tax, that oh. was just, it was in the water, right? And mm -hmm. the value of preemptive framing is, you just cannot, it's not, you cannot overestimate how valuable that is. And I, frankly, right now, don't see that happening on the part of the opposition. They should be looking to the next election and saying, what do we want this to be about? And then work backwards from that and start framing it that way today. And I, I just don't see it happening. The other, you know, and the other point that Mark made is, you know, he's not optimistic about people uh, getting frustrated with the blame game. And he's right. Uh, look, scapegoating, sadly, uh, throughout human history has been a highly effective political strategy. And it's not one that tends to uh, get called out very quickly. Uh, people are always willing to find other scapegoats if they've gotten on board with scapegoating in the first place. And, you, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia make, make darn good scapegoats uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of people in this province. And it's also, it's apparently a natural human response. I found out in some psychology classes because we were discussing how uh, when people have bad luck, they tend to blame someone else. And when they have good luck, they tend to take credit. And I ended up having, starting a discussion on that because I was like, I'm actually the opposite. If I have good luck, I look to, oh, you know, like luck. Um, but bad luck, it's like, what can I do differently? I take personal responsibility for that. And I remember my prof looking at me going, yeah, that's not normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Helpful. Um, but so I think I was thinking the same thing when you were, when you were saying, do you get, do they get sick of the blame game? Well, no, because it's, it's their own, you know, it's going on in their own head too. Well, it certainly wasn't me. Well, I, I, I like the UCP. I voted for the UCP. It's not their fault. Yeah. I did all the right things and, and yet I'm, <laughs> here I am being punished. So it's gotta be someone else's fault. Cause it wasn't yeah. me. I didn't make the wrong choice. I made the right choice. Yeah. And, I mean, like, like look ahead a year from now or 18 months from now, you know, we're still tentatively going to be in a 25% unemployment. Like some yeah. people are going to be able to go back to work, but mostly oil patches and the, uh, the bailout package that came from Trudeau today, that's, that's for only a small portion of the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. So, so like, that's not going to put a bunch of frackers back to work. That's not, you know, some of the cementing teams are going to get it to work, but your, your downhole tools aren't going to have the same type of uh, employment. Your producers aren't going to like, there's so many different facets, manufacturing side. So there's going to be a large chunk of the oil and gas industry because prices are going to be down for a 
considerable amount of time mm-hmm. who aren't going to go back to work. So right now, health and education are big on their minds because the kids are at home and grandma's locked up in the uh, long-term care, but give them another 12 to 18 months and it starts coming back to the economy again. Yeah. I don't have a job. I haven't had a job for 18 months. Maybe I haven't had a job for three years now. And, and, right. and you know, when, when people start coming around looking for a vote in 2023 and in 2022, it's going to be, how are you putting me back to work? And what I worry about is, is, you know, the, the NDP understandably is not as comfortable uh, in the language of the economy as, as conservatives are. And I think for that reason, they tend to shy away from it and, and tend to want to talk more about uh, social issues. You know, and in the 2019 election, they, I think they did a very good job of, of flagging the risks to LGBTQ kids in the province and, and the risks of, of cutting funding for, for public workers. And unfortunately, there isn't a large enough constituency there to win elections. Um, and I worry they're going to do the same thing in 2023, where they're going to talk a lot about teachers and a lot about healthcare workers, not realizing they already have those votes by and large, or as many mm-hmm. as they're going to get, and, and leaving a large part of the electorate out of their messaging. They, they have to learn to speak that language of economic opportunity. And, and they have to learn it fast because, you know, like Mark says, the next election is going to be, it's not going to be about doctors. It's not going to be about teachers. It's going to be about, can you get me back to work? Mm-hmm. Right. So basically the, the same, the same thing that it was in 2019, except even more desperate, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so your platform is going to have to be, you know, things like if you're an unemployed oil worker who hasn't had a job for 18 months, we will put you through trade school for free. We will put you through uh, coding to help our tech. Like they've got to create a couple different avenues, but it's like, go, go learn how to write code or be an electrician or something. And we'll get you back to work doing something different. And so set, what do up, you... set up rural learning in Grand Prairie and Medicine Hat. And so, so they're not having to, it's like, Oh, it sounds great, but I'm, I'm working out of Dimsdale. How do I get to Edmonton? That's a mm-hmm. four hour drive one way. Well, no, we're, we'll set up it in Grand Prairie it uh, College. We'll set it up in Medicine Hat College. We'll we'll get the training via you know remote or everything else where it needs to be, and that's 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 the promises you have to make, and then you have to deliver because because you have to deliver. Yeah, well, <laughs> at, at twenty twenty three, people are going to be desperate. Absolutely, and so to wrap it up, I'm wondering what the potential is for a change in government. There are things that the UCP does have to do because of this pandemic, because of what the aftermath will look like. Now, it's not really in their wheelhouse to do it though, right? It's not in their wheelhouse to start putting more money into post-secondary, to, you know, to properly fund um, our institutions. That's, that's not, that's not why they were elected and it's not something I think that they are comfortable doing and it's not something that they honestly want to do. No political will. So, so with that in mind, there are things that need to happen. Do you think that the UCP is capable of doing the things that Alberta is going to need, right? And, and another one being figuring out how we are going to continue to pay for the things that we find important, like doctors and rural health care and things like that. Do you think the UCP gets to the point where they actually can win the next election? Or 
are they going to struggle so poorly through this that they are absolutely uh, the no one thought it was going to happen one and done. So my my operating theory here is that they are the prohibitive favorite. They are I don't know horse racing, but pick a famous horse and they're that famous horse at a race. Like it's going to be super hard to beat them. And right. I think in a weird way, the economy can get a lot worse and it doesn't materially impact that that assessment. If it was the NDP, it would be different because you suddenly are, are vulnerable to, and it's not fair, I know, uh, you're, you're suddenly vulnerable to a, an economic critique. You're bad managers of the economy. I mean, we saw this in, in their four years in government that they got, they got you know, labeled uh, as you know, bad for the economy in spite of the fact that it was nothing to do with their policies. It really was 98% things happening in the world mm -hmm. and they got blamed for it. And in a weird way, the UCP is not gonna get blamed for what's happening in the world. Um, certainly not to the same degree. So, you know, I think the only way that, that you can see, uh, you know, a, a scenario where they are going to lose the next election is if you find a way to break, to split them up, you know, whether it's, you know, urban, rural, uh, you, you have to find a way to, to get, give pe those people that Mark is talking about, those 10 people who are not happy with the way things are going, invest them with confidence and the ability to step away. Uh, whether that's a, a, you know a different party or it's whatever it might be that you have to create you have to create courage in people who may not have enough of it right now because they're not going to do the right thing uh, in terms of of long-term policies because you know the right things you know that we're talking about reinvesting in pub in post-secondary education uh, stopping the war on public employees you know in investing for the long term that doesn't have short-term uh, payoffs right like that won't, that won't start to show up in the numbers and the data for, I don't know, half a decade, a decade, more than a decade. And they're going to the polls in less than three years. Mm -hmm. And they, trust me, they can do that calculus. That is the only, that is their favorite form of calculus. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, restoring funding to post-secondary would also require them to admit that they're wrong. And I think as we've seen with, with Tyler Shandro, there's nothing this government hates more than admitting that it's wrong. So you know, I just, I don't have a lot of optimism for, for a meaningful change of course on their part. Mark? What do you said? Ah, <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, I would have loved to leave it, you know, more optimistic than that. But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, none of us are actually gazing into a crystal ball. Things change. It's going to be an interesting next year to see how the government handles that. It's going to be an interesting, you know, uh, year after that to see how they deal with p potential recovery. Um, you know, for those of us who just like to sit back and watch, it's still going to be good. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I'm going to have plenty to write about over the next two years. Right? <laughs> there, are, there are silver linings. There's always a silver lining. All right. Well, thank you so much, Max, for joining us today. And Mark, of course. No, great to be here. Thank you very much. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Mm -hmm.